You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. On this week's show, we're going to dive into the world of new music with two of the composers who are in town this week for the Mizzou International Composers Festival. Later in the show, I'll be chatting to Richard E. Harris, an actor who recently made Columbia his home and who I thought had a mesmerizing stage presence when I saw him in Talking Horse Theatre's recent production of the play Boy. But first, new music. On last week's show, I chatted with Jacob Gottlieb, the Managing Director for the Mizzou New Music Initiative and the Mizzou International Composers Festival, and I asked him how he would define new music. And as always, he gave me a great answer. He said the word new in this context refers to a fresh conception of music, a novel idea about what music is, what it can do, what its elements are, and how they work. The French-American composer Edgard Varès once said that to stubbornly conditioned ears, anything new in music has always been called noise. But what is music but organised noises? And probably most of us do have stubbornly conditioned ears, which must make composing in the new music genre extra tough as it demands of its listeners an openness and curiosity and a willingness to suspend judgment and simply let themselves be enveloped in the soundscape. But for these composers like Varese, John Cage and my first two guests, the vanguard of music and sound is the place that they call home. Inti Ficus Vizueta is a Brooklyn-based composer who writes music through the lens of personal identities, melting the experiences of immigrant communities and the heritage and a deep connection to land. Inti was one of three winners of the 2019 Hildegard competition, the premier competition for emerging female, trans and non-binary composers organised by non-profit music venue National Sawdust. Nicole Murphy is an Australian composer who has been commissioned by eminent arts organisations around the world, including the Australian Ballet, the Royal Academy of Dance in London and the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. She holds the position of composer in residence at the Queensland Academy for Creative Industries and her work was recently selected to be included on a new compilation CD entitled Women of Note, A Century of Australian Composers. Inti and Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Inti, I have to start by asking you about your Quechua grandmother, who, quote, was the only woman butcher on the whole Plaza Central and used to fight men with a machete. She sounds awesome. Tell us about her. She's she's amazing. I mean, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so I uh, generally heard these stories through through my mom, and it was... It was always kind of a, a connecting factor to build uh, not only kind of family knowledge, but also kind of a, a mythos around a family that we didn't really have physical or geographical access to. And yeah, these, these stories kind of just stuck with me. She, you know, my grandma was a butcher in both Guayaquil and uh, Rio Bamba, both cities in Ecuador. And just, you know, she was... Fierce. She was fierce. <laughs> um, and, and it's... It's always interesting to me to have these really strong kind of women ancestors as, as someone who really engages and tries to centralize and explore my own femininity and have and have folks who maybe have less traditional or less Western conceptions of what femininity is. And, and in this case, fighting men with machetes, definitely. 
kind of does that for me. And you honor her through your music, you say on your website too. I do. The music is, it deals a lot with, with kind of these very general, very reimagined histories, both personal and uh, musical. And it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing to have a really rich, I don't like maybe the word bloodline, but a very rich history with which to kind of conceive of, a, of an alternative or a, or a reimagined. Well, now, you are both already incredibly accomplished composers, so why would you peel away from your hectic schedule to come to Columbia, Missouri for a week? Well, firstly, I think, you know, working with Alarm Will Sound is is amazing. They're at the, the centre of our industry. They have commissioned and performed so many works that I absolutely love. They're amazing musicians. Uh, and so for me to be able to work with them is a huge reason to be able to work with Amy Beth Kirsten and Donica Dennehy, who are here as guest composers. You know, I've I've loved their music for a long time, so to be able to pick their brains about how they put it together and watch them, you know, rehearsing with the ensemble, I think is really, really fascinating. And then also meeting the other resident composers and getting to know other people's music would be the big draw card for me. I mean, there are other composition festivals around the world, but I think the difference is that Alarm Will Sound is here. So that is that the draw card for you? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I can't kind of stress enough that the opportunity to do this and not have to pay anything <laughs> is... Uh, it's enticing. This, you know, there there are elements of this field that, that kind of always talk about. You need to buy in. You need to spend three thousand, five thousand dollars at a summer festival in order to get anything done. And so it's a, it's amazing to have this. Yeah, just such a high level of musicianship and artistry, very accessible. Because you know, I don't save much money living in Brooklyn. And I'm, I'm guessing it's pretty difficult making a living as a new music composer too. It's, it's you know it's fairly commission based. It's few uh, streams of income, and so it uh, yeah it's just a, it's amazing to have kind of opportunities to continue to to grow craft maybe aside from or distinct from maybe more professional musical pursuits. So you've been here for a week. You started on Monday. There have been masterclasses with the guest composers. You've all presented uh, your works to each other. There is critical feedback. What's your takeaway from this week? What have you, has your understanding of composition changed, Nicole, as a result of this week? I think your understanding of composition is continually changing and it's it's nice where those ideas sort of pop up where you don't expect them. Um, I had a, a lesson with Amy Beth Kirsten a few days ago and we were just talking about a piece I'd written maybe three or four years ago now and all of a sudden she had just noticed a little gesture that I... I mean, it wasn't a throwaway gesture, but it was less significant in the piece. You know, just this tiny gesture between two phrases. And she was quite taken by it. And she said, oh, I can imagine all these possibilities and started talking about it. And instantly there was sort of the this idea for a commission that I have coming up that I'd been struggling to think about, you know, how I might how I might write or how I might begin. So just those tiny little comments that, you know, are seemingly quite small but turn, you know, your mind towards other things I think are really valuable. NT, have there been any surprises this week in what you've learned? I, I do kind of a very specific um, notational and kind of musical practice. And so it was amazing to have both of these lessons. But in the in the lesson with Donica, it was it was amazing to have someone just really be like, okay, what's this piece? What's this piece? What's this piece? Okay, I see what you're doing. What's the piece that you did right before you did these? And, you know, I pulled up a document from two years ago from a, a festival where I wrote a piece that just completely flopped. And, you know, I'm out, you know, I have a lot of <laughs> emotional baggage.
about this piece and I bring it up and I'm like, oh, it doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work. And then the second movement of it actually is almost like a protean or, or very initial version of, of a lot of the stuff I'm exploring now. And so it was amazing to have someone bring out that line of continuity and, yeah, I guess a kind of evolution of, of style, almost retro, retrospectively. So I've spent this week down the rabbit hole of both of your websites, which has been fascinating. There's so much on there. So thank you very much for an enjoyable week of research. And, and one of the things that you both talk about, though maybe from different philosophies, is the importance of giving your performers space for their own expression. So NT, you talk about creating music in an ethical way and liberatory practice. Tell us what that idea of performer space means for you. So, you know, I started music pretty late, kind of 18, 19. I, I was a physics major for uh, most of my life and saw that as my pathway. And stuff happened and I, you know, I became a composer. But a core part of my conception of music was that it needed breath and it needed space. And it was really hard for me as someone who maybe came to this late to see that on the literal piece of paper that is the instruction to play the music. It's all filled with lines and boxes and, you know, all these kinds of things that provide form and structure, but also to me were quite limiting. And so I tried to develop and continue to develop through kind of research and discussion and, and, and talking with performers, the a new vernacular, a kind of uh, shaped vernacular for for those uh, performers with the conception that it reflects elements of, of critical pedagogy, especially kind of explored by um, bell hooks. And so kind of trying to, to integrate those, those into the very practice of, of the music making has been a, has been a kind of couple year focus and pursuit. I'm going to come back and ask you about your scores in a minute because they're very interesting. But Nicole, you also talk about how music has a sense of ambiguity and of secrecy and that you also want to give your audience some space. So explain what you mean by that. I really enjoy the ambiguity in music. So in the way that other art forms can have a narrative, for example, in dance, it doesn't necessarily have to, but it may. Visual art can display a setting or it may have symbolism in it that we understand. Obviously, literature, you know, can be abundantly or not so abundantly clear, depending. But music sort of has this veil of ambiguity where the composer doesn't necessarily have to give away what the music is about. And I think sometimes that's really lovely and safe as a composer to be able to still be expressive, but to sit behind a bit of a veil. And I think it's also really generous for the, uh, for the audience rather, because they get to come to it on their own terms. So I might be expressing one thing, but they might be hearing something completely different. And that's fine. That's valid. Um, you know, we're all sort of meeting the music where, where we come from and what our lenses are that we look through. And so I do really love that sort of ambiguous aspect of, of our language. I've had that discussion with artists about it. Is, does the artist, the visual artist, have a responsibility to let us know what they are thinking when we look at a work or, or is it not their job to do that? And as a composer, do you feel the same way that you're composing for you and what the audience take away is up to them? I mean, it can be an inherently selfish pursuit. You know, it's just, I mean, for me, particularly when I was younger, I was just always writing as a, in the same way that I'd write in a diary, you know, as a, just a, a creative outlet. And so I guess in some ways I'm still doing that. But you do hope that other people are, are gaining from it. Um, in terms of, you know, that interaction with the audience and telling them what, what the music might mean to me, I'll often give them a small insight into that, a little key, a weight into the work. But then I do like to leave them space to 
to assign their own meaning to it. Well, let's listen to a little music. This is a clip from the second movement of a work called Stolen, composed by Nicole Murphy, for electric guitar soloist Solomon Silver and a chamber ensemble. just a short clip from the second movement of Nicole Murphy's work Stolen, a 45-minute work featuring seven ensemble movements interspersed with a solo movement for each instrument. And you can see the whole thing on NicoleMurphy.com website, which is really interesting. It's the, it's the movement and also interviews with the musicians, and it's really a great little documentary. Nicole, tell us a little bit about the work you'll be premiering with Alarm Will Sound on Saturday night. Sure, well, that's actually a great segue because both the piece Stolen that you just heard and the piece that will be premiering on Saturday are based on a piece of poetry by the same writer. Uh, so two different pieces of poetry published a few years apart, but the, the same writer, Richard James Allen, who's a Sydney-based author. And the piece for Saturday night is based on a beautiful piece of text that sort of looks at the unravelling of these kind of intricately woven lives that we have um, that occurs, you know, through the process of grief or trauma or illness. And so looking at the idea of things that gradually come undone, you know, where at first you just hear little moments that might be jarring, that might be outside of the normal, and then, you know, the music kind of collects itself and then you hear a little bit more and it, it gradually begins to, to pull apart and unwind and so I suppose that's what the piece is about. A lot of my work is based on text or takes inspiration from other art forms. And so Richard is someone, uh, a writer who I've 
gotten a lot out of his his work and have collaborated with in various ways over the years. And the work is called Dust. It is. Is it from a poem called The Captain of the Men of Death by yes. Richard James Allen? Okay. So yeah, you can check that out online. Um, into your scores have been described as visually ravishing and as more of a recipe than an aggressively notated score. They look very different from what I'm guessing most performers are used to in that there are almost as many words on the page as there are notes. Talk a little bit about the visual components of your score. Sure. Um, Also kind of coming out of a poetic fascination and research has been yeah, just the power of finding expression and freedom in instruction and in just the words themselves. Um, there's a composer, Jennifer Walsh, who's a, an Irish composer, and, and she's just kind of legendary for these really kind of well-phrased instructions and the articulation of freedom in just kind of small phrases. And I'm afraid I haven't quite gotten there yet. And I still kind of expound <laughs> a little bit in my scores. But yeah, my scores are kind of my main um, medium for this art, I'm trying to give a combination of lead sheet and overall sense of structure and just space on a page. I was, uh, <laughs> I've had a lot, of, a lot of discussions with musicians about this as well, because what I give them in, in kind of notated form is in general, quite different from what I ask of them when I'm in person, which is <laughs> of questioning sometimes by my colleagues. Um, because, you know, there's this idea that a score should be this artifact that anyone with the requisite classical knowledge should be able to engage with. And for me, I, I really kind of need a conversation, especially focusing on those moments between pages, between materials, which I kind of think of as like shadows, and and that those things are the the negative space that define the actual placement of material and the transformation of them. You had commented in one interview that all the information is there, you just need a fluency in my vernacular, but what if the performers don't have that fluency and you're you're not there? Have Have you been asked just to... Can you actually just write it all down and notate it all out for us? And, and do you say yes if they ask you that? <laughs> I have been asked that, and I have done it. It has run. It has created more problems than it's fixed, though, a lot of the time. So, for example, I'll give an entire score of material to every performer, and so they'll be able to kind of see themselves in, in placement and in kind of a general space. And I've been asked, you know, create parts, make this easier, less page turns, all these things. And then someone won't know where, they're, where they are, what they're doing. There'll be more questions in rehearsal than there ever were before. And so <laughs> I definitely feel those questions. I, as kind of a younger composer as well, I often have to deal with people who think, and maybe rightfully so, maybe wrongfully so, that they know more than me um, about my own music. I mean, if you're not there, I mean, if you're in the room and you're being the ambassador for your work, then it's fine. You can talk to people and explain what you want. But if they're playing it when you're not there, they maybe don't always know what you intend. Yeah, I was able, I had the privilege of of attending a a workshop that Meredith Monk put on at National Sawdust as part of the um, Hildegard competition that you mentioned. And she talked a lot about the fact that she had a practice that she needed just literally to bring in folks who could build with her over a really long period of time and that that was her music making and I I think I kind of fit between those things where I definitely want to be involved with the performance process because it 
I, I think that kind of what I'm trying to bring is, is a level of facilitation and, and insight and, and just being able to make energy flow in an ensemble or in a room, which I can't do with five pages of instructions, which I feel like was the tendency of similar kinds of musics back in the 70s. Let's have another musical interlude and listen to a work by Inti. This is a short clip from a work called Whose Name Do You Make Thunder the Room? with recorded stories about growing up and existing as women and queer people of colour while making tea. So I love this one. Ladies, everywhere I go, someone is trying to slap one on me. Feeling not very quiet. Woman. Woman. Old enough, professional, on minimum wage, the layer for today, skin clear. He told me that because I did not fear love, that I was less than. He told me that because of who I love, that I am bad. He told me that my being is wrong. But it is you who fears, and who does not love, and it is you who is wrong. Woman, from birth you assign me with a coded vocabulary. From birth you teach me that I must be a pawn. From birth you demand my compliance. But what if I refute your violent vocabulary? I will ascend above your rigged game, and I refuse to comply. Of color. Born of my ancestors' joy, you alienate me from them. Born of a different skin color, you scream that I am not worthy to be called black or indigenous. Born of my parents, you insist that I do not belong. But my ancestors are with me, and I with them. I am worthy, and I belong here on this earth. Being a woman of color, I have known love and fear, right and wrong fought their violence and vile words. I refuse to play their game and to comply. And I know that I belong here on this earth where my ancestors once stood because I am worthy of this life. And that was a short clip from a work composed by Inti Figures Vizueta called Whose Name Do You Make Thunder the Room? Inti, your work at the festival is called Braiding on Golden Stoops. Tell us quickly about that work. Sure. The conception of the work was this feeling of tension and joy and sorrow and just all the kind of complexities of, of, of summertime living in, in cities. I grew up in Washington, D.C., um, in predominantly black Salvadorian and Vietnamese communities. And this feeling was always kind of there in the air, especially as I was the lightest skin one in my group and often had to be the one speaking with authority, particularly police. And so both Whose Name Do You Make Thunder the Room and Braiding on Golden Stoops take their titles from the poetry of Dennis Smith, who's just an amazing poet. And I've been a fan for a really long time, especially around their experiences in college and in, in graduate school, where I kind of also had to <laughs> take an exodus. And yeah, so Braiding on Golden Stoops um, kind of refers to this feeling in, in kind of all of its complexities, all of the, all of the joy of, of the, the freedom, the time, the, the long days, um, but also the, the fact that that increases visibility and increases both the material tendency of more people to die and um, the, 
anxiety around even just existing outside. And so the pieces for uh, Alarmal Sound is an experiment of its own in terms of implementing my notational elements that kind of more deal with chamber ensembles and applying them to a much larger conducted group. And they have been absolutely amazing about talking to me, about just letting just the music flow and blend into itself. I know you're both working on a ton of things that are coming up. Nicole, I know you've just been commissioned to create a new work for flute, violin, trumpet, horn and bassoon to celebrate the International Year of the Periodic Table, which will be performed by the St. Andrew's New Music Ensemble this October. How far have you got along with that so far? Oh, that's a bit of a stressful question. <laughs> um, I've actually, I, I've been attempting to work on that this week alongside another piece um, that I have for an ensemble in Sydney, Ensemble Offspring, uh, that I'm finishing off a piece for them uh, that I'll be workshopping once I get back to Australia. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's all there in my head. It's just a matter of getting it out, which is always the challenge. Thank you so much to both Intifigus Visueta. How am I saying that correctly? Yeah, it's... Uh, Near enough. It's like Intifigus Visueta. Inti Figures Fisweta and Nicole Murphy, my guest today. The culminating performance of this year's Mizzou International Composers Festival is tomorrow night at the Missouri Theatre, where you can hear eight world premieres composed by the festival's resident composers and performed by world-renowned ensemble Alarm Will Sound. To see what other events you can attend between now and tomorrow night, go to composersfestival.missouri.edu and all the concerts are completely free this year, so all it costs you is time and curiosity. Thank you, Inti and Nicole. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be chatting to actor Richard E. Harris, who recently made Columbia his home and has already set at least one stage alight. Stay close to your radios. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. My second guest this week is a very accomplished man. He's been a touring musician working with artists like Gladys Knight, disco lady Johnny Taylor, then a recording artist and a music producer for artists such as The Whispers, Ricky Martin and TLC. He toured Japan for a year as a solo artist, is an accomplished pianist who composes and produces music for film and TV, and he's an actor with a string of TV and stage credits. He moved to Columbia early this year and was captivating on the stage at Talking Horse theatre earlier this summer in their production of the Anna Ziegler play called Boy. Richard Harris, welcome to the show. Hello, nice to be here. Now, is it an advantage or a giant pain to share your name with the multi-award winning Richard S. Harris, the man who brought Albus Dumbledore to life in the first two (laughs) Harry Potter movies? I considered it a badge of honour because (laughs) the man called Horace makes me out to be just a superman. So it's cool. I mean, he did He did die in 2002, yes, so it's, it's a while yeah. ago, and I think yeah. your your stage performances have been subsequent to that. But do, yes. do you ever get calls from casting agents well, SAG, thinking that you are that Richard Harris? SAG in, uh, instructed me that I could not go by Richard Harris. I would have to put an E, my mi- middle initial, in between where we could have that distinction. So I'm Richard E. Harris. And he, for the record, is Richard S. Harris. Yes. Richard yes. Sinjin Harris. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I first saw you in the Playboy, in which you played Dr. Wendell Barnes, and you were mesmerizing. In fairness to the other actors in the play, you were all very compelling, but there was something about you that you possessed the stage and that kept my eyes on you. So I think the first thing I said to the theatre's artistic director was, after the play was, who is Richard Harris? Because, <laughs> you know, I've seen a lot of plays in Columbia and I'm like, I don't know who this person is. Um, but you only arrived at your acting career relatively recently, so what took you so long? Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much for that 
it's embarrassing to be uh, so good to get that from <laughs> someone. I I really appreciate it. Um, I think music is what took me so long to get back to it. When I was when I was in high school, I performed in a play, Ain't Misbehaving, and I played Fats Waller. And right then, I knew I had the bug, but it was like music I, f- I knew was the catapult. And so I turned all my attention to music. And then when my, my son, my youngest son, he was in the fences, and it rekindled. And I said, okay, what I will do is I will make sure that I pay for classes for my son to attend. And he decided, no, I want to be a musician like you. So here I was stuck with these classes and my wife, she said, why don't you take the classes? And from that point on, I started acting. I started turning my attention to acting. So the role of Wendell Barnes in Boy must have been a very interesting role to perform. He's an incredibly complex and nuanced character, full of conviction, but also by the end of the play, full of confliction. So knowing the real life story that inspired Boy... It's a struggle to like Dr. Barnes. Right. How did you prepare for that role? Well, the first thing that you that I knew that I was taught is never judge the character that I play. Never judge him. Just think, why would he do that? Why would he be like that? What would be his backstory? And that's basically what got me through it is because I gave him, I was empathetic to him. I was empathetic to me then as that character and so the conflict with an an emotion emotional conflict happens naturally in anybody and everybody no one's ever completely right no one's ever completely wrong everybody has good and bad qualities and what drives them is their conviction i am doing something that's going to be you know better uh, better for me are better for the people around me. And so that's basically what I what I took with me, is that. So in preparing his backstory in your own head, did, mm-hmm. you, did you give him a slightly different backstory than the real life person? Well, that, that was the, the trick. Once I found out who he really was, and, and I read pieces on the, on the writer and how she said, it's loosely based, you know, then I said, okay, I'm going to leave that real person alone and come up with my own person for this man. This is who he is to me. Right. And so that's basically how I did it. As an actor, there must be some dream roles that come along that you'd love to reprise and others that you are happy to shake off the toxicity at the end of a play. Were you happy to see the end of Dr. Barnes? Yes, I was. (laughs) But it was not because it was just too emotional. Well, it was emotional and you have to shake it off Mm. because if you really try to play it the right way, you you can get kind of emotionally attached. And I was attached to him. And um, so it was like, okay, let's put him down and go on. Let's go on. Let's live somebody else's life. At the end of a performance, how long does it take you to leave him behind? Do you get home and your wife says, hey, I need Richard back. Uh Wendell needs to go away. Does it take a while to lose the character? Not for me. You know, it's like uh, a bourbon. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's about it. You know, he sticks in my mind. He Mm -hmm. stays with me like anything, any person that you you encounter. They stick with you and they make you a little bit. They make you a little bit. So... 
So let's do a little chronological backtracking through okay. the list of accomplishments that I had in your introduction. So it all began in Fort Worth, Texas, in a household of strong women, who we'll come to in a moment, yeah. with a trumpet. Yes. What made you pick up the trumpet? Well, it wasn't my choice. It was my sister's choice. My choice was drums. But my sister and mother got mm. together because Good they job, heard sister. me beating on walls. And, so, and it was like, okay, when you get, she was older than I was. And she said, when you get to Mr. Hamilton, the band director, you tell him that he's not to have a drum set. And she said, and so he, she told Mr. Hamilton, the director, and he said, he gave me a mouthpiece, a trumpet mouthpiece. And he says, you're going to play the trumpet. And that's what made me start playing trumpet. I guess, you know, if you're a parent, there's a lot of instruments you really kind of hope your children don't play. I mean, <laughs> yeah, my mother was like, well, see, my mother belonged to a group of uh, a group called the United Front, which was a community organizing group in, in the black community in Fort Worth. And what I did was I played the Congos while they did poetry. So that's what I mean. I was known for it. like a six-year-old boy that's playing behind these these men saying, "Gawa, black power!" You know, we all, you know. And I'm just playing these kungas. So that's what made me want to play drums. But my mother was not gonna have it. I would have thought you know, your mother would have not only told Mr. Hamilton like you, you can't play drums, but like here are the three instruments that he can play. <laughs> I mean, was she happy with trumpets? She, that's kind of loud too. No, she. She she came to understand that the trumpet can be quite loud <laughs> and, I mean, irritating. But. but you obviously mastered it because from Fort Worth, you got a place at Howard University in Washington, D.C. And then after school, you became a touring musician with Johnny Taylor, mm-hmm. which must have been a major trip into the music world. So what are some of your most vivid recollections of that time touring? Well, uh, let's see. Oh, some of them I'm not going to be able to. Uh, <laughs> the ones that we can listen to on Family but Time I, Public Radio. I can tell you, one of the most vivid and kind of embarrassing things was um, I was playing with Johnny in Jackson, Mississippi, in this large arena, maybe 15,000 people arena, and all the lights go out. And the very first song is me opening with this piano. And I look out in the audience, you know, and there's this sea of, of cigarette lighters. And the spotlight is on me, not Johnny. He walks up to me as I play, and he starts singing. And I got off the stage, and I ran, and I got on the phone with my mother, and I said, I have arrived. I am a star. I am a star. And everybody laughed at me because, (laughs) no, you're not the star. It was Johnny. They were actually, you know. So that was that was a vivid uh, thing. Uh, And the bus rides, touring. I mean, I kind of miss it, even though at the time it was like grueling. But I miss that. I miss the camaraderie. I miss the um, I just miss the smell of it. I miss everything about it. And the smell was. I just miss everything about that because it, 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 whenever I think about it, the nostalgia of it, it reminds me of my youth. It reminds me when I, it was much easier for me. You know, I didn't mind missing a meal or I didn't mind. I didn't have a lot of responsibility. It was just that piano, that instrument, that synthesizer. Um, that was my only responsibility in making sure I was on time. And I mean, I just, uh, that was a good time for me, you know. This is the, are we in the 80s here? Yes, we are. Okay. We're in the 80s. Okay. We're, in the, we're from uh, 80, I, I toured 
with bands from 83 till 89, 90. And then I just started producing. When I got to California, when I got there, that's when I started just turned my whole attention to producing the studio. Johnny Taylor has an interesting and difficult personal life with a lot of children and a lot of difficulty when his estate was split up. So I wonder, looking back on those days through the lens of hashtag me too, do you kind of cringe a little bit? Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, back then it was a it was a different time. Men were uh, the way uh, the landscape for women was not very cool was not very cool at all and men were not very um empathetic to the plight of women and uh so yes it was not a easy time for women and I look back at it and I say to myself you know uh wow I'm sorry particularly because you came from such strong background and such strong women in your family exactly and that 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 uh that actually helped me through it Mm -hmm. the mind feel because um, if I didn't have a strong woman, a strong women behind me, including my sister, I, I would have fallen into a lot of those holes. Right. You know, yeah. So after touring, you changed sides and you moved into music pro- onto the music production side, working with huge pop and disco names such as Ricky Martin, TLC, mm-hmm. and The Whispers. Now, and I can just say that in 1979, the, that version of myself, I loved And The Beat Goes On. Oh, yeah. And I would never imagine that one day I would be now just one degree of separation <laughs> from The Whispers. <laughs> very exciting. Well, you know, I was excited the very first. Norm Nixon was my manager. That He played, he was the guard for Los Angeles Lakers for a long time and the Clippers. And his wife is Debbie Allen, who's a Texan like myself. She also went to Howard University, but that's not how I met him. I met him because Chrysalis Records was in the building that they had their little managing and he became my manager. And up a floor Above him were the Whispers office. So the very first thing that he did was take me upstairs and says, this young dude right here, he's this da-da-da-da-da. And they just brought me in the studio and said, okay, show us what you got. That's how it, and so I never had an opportunity to say, I'm standing in front of these twins, you know, that's made these iconic disco songs and I'm actually about to do this. So that's how that happened. Are you still in touch with people from that era? I'm in touch with Norm. Norm is still does um, commentary for the Lakers, and whenever I go to a game or something, I'll see him, and he, you know, and he'll say, "Richard, you got fat," or "Richard, you got skinny," or "Richard, how you doing?" You know, and so, and I see Debbie sometimes, and I say, "Miss Allen," and she says, like she's always, "Stop calling me Miss Allen." <laughs> So you write in your bio that acting for stage and screen has been a lifelong dream. So like at what point in your life, like like age-wise or, or career-wise, did you think, let's try something new. I'm just going to completely go off at a tangent here. I've always been enamored with August Wilson. He, I mean, I get emotional just talking about him. He is like, um, he's my Shakespeare, as far as I'm concerned. He, he put together 10 plays that actually chronalize the black experience in America. The Pittsburgh cycle. The Pittsburgh cycle, the century cycle. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And each play is a different decade. It's each is a different decade, and it's based on all of the things that are dear to my heart, especially music. You know, he blues, Mulraney's, Black Bottom Sevens, guitars. I mean, a host of his plays are based around or have some kind of uh, strong pulse of music in it. Even the the uh, dialogue is so rhythmic, you know, it's so uh, urban. So that's basically that passion for August Wilson in those plays. And then once Obama took his wife on their anniversary, the first year that they were, he was the president, to see Joe Turner's Come and Gone. And that rekindled it. Mm. It was like, oh, man, I remember that. And that rekindled it. And then my son was in Fences. Right, and, and yeah. Fences was originally a play, but then in 2016, yeah. Denzel Washington produced yes. it, and yes. it starred him and Viola Davis, yes. and it was a huge yes. movie. most definitely. So yeah. Fences is the one that I think a lot of people may yeah. know as an August Wilson play. Yeah. My, my thing is, um, I think Jim Avulsion is one of my favorite performances of a character, and that's Felicia Richard. I think, and that's Debbie Allen's sister. Uh, I think she's the cast meow. Now, Wilson was very involved in the 1990s with the development of contemporary black theatre, mm -hmm. but he also argued that black actors should not play roles not specifically black. Mm -hmm. How do he's, you feel about that? He's very controversial. And, but that's not, that has nothing to do with the way I feel about him, even though I might not agree. That has nothing to do with the way I feel about him or his contribution. I understand it. I understand what he means, but that doesn't mean I agree. Do you see an opportunity in Columbia now that you're here to develop a contemporary black theatre or maybe a black programme under the auspices of one of the existing theatre groups here in Columbia? Are you already working on that? You're smiling like, you see oh, my I'm big smile. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I, me wanting to make Columbia my home, I want to, you know, my grand service, I want to serve. And I think that might be a way that I can, and um, in a number of ways that I can. But that is one, and I've been looking at that for for a minute, just seeing how can I, how can this passion for that particular part of art, can I bring, you know, can I be a part of, can I help, you know? And so, yes. Why are you here, Richard E. Harris? I mean, why are you in Columbia? Because, I mean, you had this big life going on in L.A. and, and bigger cities, and now you're in Columbia, Missouri. I mean, I'm very glad that you're here, but why? Well, why do, <laughs> why do men do what they do? Women. <laughs> so your wife has a job my here. Wife, my wife is from here. Oh, your wife is from Columbia. My wife is from here. Oh. She's originally uh, uh, from Columbia. I mean, this is her home. And she decided she was ready to retire. And so because she wanted to retire and I'm not going to leave her and she's not going to leave me, guess what? I came to <laughs> Columbia. But I've been coming in and out of Columbia with her since 2002. So it's not like it's new to me. It's just new that I live here. But uh, I like a challenge as well. And being in the middle of Missouri, trying to establish a career such as mine in the age of technology, this is going to be fun. You know, I have myself an agent in Kansas City and an agent in St. Louis, and there's Chicago right there, and Memphis is here, and Atlanta is there, and of course my hometown, Dallas-Fort Worth, is right there. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see if I can pull this off. So you got here in what, February? Yeah, uh, actually in December. 
but uh, I, I reared my head in February. Hello, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> I finished unpacking. Yeah. <laughs> and how has it been? I mean, you've been in Boy, and I know you have something coming yes. up at Maplewood Barn. Yes. Have you done anything else or just a bit establishing contacts around Establishing it? contacts. And that's basically what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to introduce myself and, and make sure that, the, that, I, that people see that I am available. Just call. Call me. I'm there. And once I establish myself as a person that can be trusted, then from there I will try to do things my way, certain things to see if I can interject. But right now it's like, hey, who are the people, you know, Talking Horse, Maplewood Born, Columbia Entertainment Company. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just trying to make sure that they, hey, look at me, I'm I'm waving. And I, and I, I bring my recording technology degree which makes me an audio person to the film and independent documentary part of this thing. I can do that as well. I'm writing. You need me to help. I compose. You need me to help, you know, and that's basically what I'm here doing right now. It's just to establish a foothold. So when you were in Los Angeles, you had some pretty major TV credits. You were on Bronx SIU. You've been mm. in Bones. How did you get those breaks? Right you, place at the right time? No, actually, um, a friend of mine, Omar Epps, a very established actor, I told him what I was trying to do, what I was pursuing now. And he said, go to Central Casting. Start right there. Background. Start right there. That means that you're going to find out exactly the vernacular. You're going to find out what the set looks like, what it feels like, what it smells like. And you're going to, you know, plug yourself in there and get your vouchers for your SAG card. And that's basically how it happened. And because I was an older guy, I didn't have to contend with younger people. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as the roles were concerned, it's like, okay, this older guy and he's actually, you know, he doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Let's bring him in. Let's see if he can do it. And so it gave me an opportunity to do some roles that, quite frankly, younger people didn't have an opportunity right away to do. Now, as as you mentioned, and as we all know, behind every successful man, there are many strong women. Mm -hmm. And I would like to hear about your granny, who is amazing. So could you brag on her for a little while, please? Oh, that's my heart. That's, that's, I think, uh, the reason why I am who I am is based on Opal Lee Lee. She's 93 now. Uh, she's always been, she's a, a school teacher turned social worker turned community organizer. The biggest, the biggest thing, thing in my memory of my grandmother as I was growing up was that in 68, she used to pick us up from school and she pulled over in the middle of the street and she jumped out of the car and she was crying. Now I'm seven years old and I'm watching my grandmother just ball in the middle of the street. And that was the day that Martin Luther King was shot. That tells everything about her, right there, her compassion, what motivates her. Service, service, service. Juneteenth is um, a celebration that happens in Texas and some of the surrounding southern states that have a lot to do with when those slaves were freed, you know, after the emancipation and um, all of that stuff went down. The Texas slaves were kept in bondage to get the crops in. 
you know, keep they, two and a half years. Everybody be quiet. We need these crops in mm. two and a half years of it. And then finally, one of the union uh, generals land in Houston and start telling everybody, you guys are free. You've been free this whole time. It's a big celebration in Texas because of it. My grandmother, that's one of her passions is to make that the national holiday, Juneteenth, a national holiday. She actually, a few years back, she took a sojourn from Fort Worth to uh, D.C. to try to make, to try to get, she was trying to get there before uh, Barack Obama was at large. Hang on, she walked from Fort Worth, Texas. At the age of 90, 90. she walked from Fort Worth to D.C. with a couple of little rides in between. Yes, yes. She was 90. She's 90 years old and she's making this track in this hot asphalt, you know, she's, she's determined. And she's always been, that's what she taught me, tenacity, discipline, obedience, and uh, civil disobedience when necessary. I, I can't s- say enough about her. I can't say enough about how thankful I am to have someone like that in my life, that I was lucky enough to have that kind of guidance in my life that made me uh, understand what service, how service is actually the one that serves is the one that gets all of the benefit of service how what that means and that's that's my grandmother you know opalie and she's really controlling <laughs> she's very controlling <laughs> well now it's 600 miles from exactly from fort worth to columbia so yes. maybe has she has she been over to see you yet she walked oh, up no, she, but she's coming for thanksgiving <laughs> i've already told her you know she picked me up from the airport the last time i was there she drove to the airport and i'm like what are you doing and your mother told me to come pick you up like you're driving and I was the whole time I was like okay you're 90 still and you're driving and she was like she had her couple of pillows lifted her up and she was a F-150 <laughs> that's my grandmother well when she comes for Thanksgiving maybe we can get you both back on the show and she can tell us about her Juneteenth oh. March she would herself. love to come in and tell you about Juneteenth and <laughs> All of that. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to meet her. She sounds amazing. Yeah. Now, she's your mother's mother. Yes, she is. Okay. Mm-hmm. So going forward, you have a role coming up. You are going to be in Rumours at Maplewood Barn, and that opens later in August. Yes. With a really a stellar cast, Nora Dietzel, Chris Bowling, Audrey Abeta, Jerrica Leonard. And you, once again... Are playing a psychiatrist. Yes, I am. I think these doctors, I think they see doc. I don't see doctor. I see slapstick <laughs> clown. <laughs> now, Rumors is a farce, yes. so that is oh, very yes, yes. hilarious. Uh, I'm play. having such a wonderful time with this. Neil Simon, I mean, you know, odd couple guy. I mean, what can you say? It's going to be, and the director, Christopher, oh, man, how, I mean, how is polished is this guy how he knows his thing and of course i love everybody nora you know and everybody chris and sarah and all of the oh i love everybody the whole cast i'm having a good time so you're already in rehearsals for yes that. we are yes we are and it's 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 becoming very fun now now that we've <laughs> passed blocking stage it's like okay 
guys let it rip kind of thing. So it's fun. I think it's, is it August the 19th? You open yes, or something like that? Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, we will all come out and see you. My guest today has been Richard E. Harris. You can see him on stage at Maplewood Barn later in August in the Neil Simon Fast Rumours. And tickets for that show are available at maplewoodbarn.com. Thank you so much, Richard. My pleasure. And welcome to Columbia. Thank it you. is a Thank delight so to have you here. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> you are listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way onto your calendars. This weekend is the 10th annual Mizzou International Composers Festival. And in celebration of its first decade, this year, every single concert is totally free. So if you're not sure whether you like new music, this is the year to go and find out. This afternoon, there is a pop-up concert at Uprise Bakery featuring Mizzou Ensemble Chemia. Tonight at the Missouri Theatre, the New Music Ensemble and the Mizzou Percussion Ensemble perform works by both the festival's resident and guest composers, and that's at 7.30. And at 9.30 tonight, experimental percussionist Ellie Kessler performs at the Firestone Bars Chapel on the Stevens College campus in a concert that is co-produced with Columbia's Dismal Niche Festival. At Skylock Bookshop this evening, sports writer and MUJ school graduate Wright Thompson is in town to talk about his book, The Cost of These Dreams, a collection of his essays about famous sporting figures. He'll be at Skylark from 6 till 7.30. Tonight and tomorrow night, Cabaret for a Cause is back at Talking Horse Theatre with a fundraiser called Unapologetic, a rally for choice, a concert to benefit the Gateway Women's Access Fund and a rallying cry by a stellar cast for reproductive rights and access to necessary health care for all Missourians. That concert is at 7.30, say tonight and tomorrow, and tickets are $15. At the Mecklenburg Theatre, Trips Children's Theatre has a one-weekend-only production of the Roald Dahl musical Matilda. You can catch 7 p.m. evening shows tonight and tomorrow, plus 2 p.m. matinees on both Saturday and Sunday. And Saturday's matinee will be ASL-supported for the hearing impaired. Tickets are 12 for adults and 7 for children. This weekend is your last chance to see the Maplewood Barn production of the Irving Berlin musical White Christmas. The show starts at 8pm tonight, tomorrow and Sunday night and tickets are $12. And in Arrow Rock, the musical comedy 9 to 5 is in its final weekend at the Lyceum Theatre. I know the matinees are sold out, but you may still find some tickets for the final two evening performances tonight and tomorrow at 8 and tickets are $42. And at the Maples Rep Theatre in Macon, you have two viewing choices this weekend. It's the final two performances performances of the Savannah Sipping Society and that's tonight at 7.30 and tomorrow at 2 and there are also performances of Buddy, the Buddy Holly story at 7.30 tomorrow night as well as the 2pm Sunday matinee. Saturday is a big day for music. The Mizzou International Composers Festival continues with a concert by the Chemia Ensemble at the Whitmore Recital Hall at 11am. Yarl Rock has its campus showcase concert at the Blue Note on Saturday afternoon at 2.30. And the showcase concert is the end of a week where campus learned an instrument, started a band and wrote an original song for this Blue Note showcase. At the Missouri Theatre, the International Composers Festival culminates tomorrow night with a concert of eight world premieres composed by the festival's eight resident composers and performed by the world-renowned ensemble Alarm Will Sound. The concert starts at 7.30 and like everything else in that festival there is no cost to attend. And at the Blue Note, five local musicians have joined forces to create Bullet the Blue Sky, a tribute to U2 and they'll be on stage at 9pm for a $5 ticket. Sunday evening, the summer concerts in the garden continues with Lisa Rose, Margaret Bianchetta and Bags Fly Free playing live at Shelter Gardens starting at 7. Monday night, pianist Jacqueline Schwab plays vintage songs of Immigrant America at the Boone History and Culture Centre in a concert called I Lift My Lamp. Tickets are $25 for the 7pm concert. 
Next Tuesday, Movies in the Park at Rose Park is Talladega Nights, starring Will Ferrell. The film starts at 8.30, and that's free to attend. Next Thursday is opening night at Columbia Entertainment Company for their production of one of Shakespeare's best-known comedies, A Midsummer Night's Dream. The show has a two-weekend run, and tickets are $12 or just 10 on Thursdays. At Stevens Lake Park, Columbia Parks and Recreation is hosting the very first karaoke in the park next Thursday. If you want to be sure of a spot on the karaoke stage, you can sign up in advance or if time allows, they'll accept walk-ups. You can check it out from 7 till 9 next Thursday. And finally, as next Thursday is August the 1st at Rose Music Hall, it is all Jerry all night with the Stone Sugar Shakedown on stage from 8pm to celebrate the annual Jerry Garcia Day. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me Diana Moxon and my good friend and sound engineer Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in Missouri. Stay arty Columbia.